welcome to Soul Food, a verse-by-verse ministry teaching of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Hey guys, thanks for taking the time to study God's Word with me. Turn to me your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore, when Jews perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Father, we do pray that you would take your word today, Lord. We have no idea the people that will be listening to it and where their hearts are with you. I pray, Father, that you would do a saving work today, a sanctifying work, and a strengthening work, Lord, to everyone who hears this message. We ask in your name. Amen. John Ortberg tells a true story that highlights the importance of knowing who to trust. He begins, Some years ago, my wife arranged for us to ride in a hot air balloon as a birthday gift. We went to the field where the balloons ascended and got into a little basket with one other couple. We introduced ourselves and swapped vocational information. Then our pilot began the ascent. The day had just dawned. It was clear, crisp, and cloudless. We could see the entire valley from craggy canyons to the Pacific Ocean. It was scenic, inspiring, and majestic. But I also experienced one emotion that I hadn't anticipated. Want to guess? Fear. I'd always thought those baskets went about chest high, but this one only came up to our knees. One good lurch would be enough to throw someone over the side. So I held on with grim determination and white knuckles. I looked over at my wife, who does not care for heights at all, and relaxed a bit, knowing that there was at least someone in the basket more tense than I was. I could tell, because she would not move. At all. During part of our flight, there was a horse ranch on the ground directly behind her. I pointed out because she loves horses, and without turning around or even pivoting her head, she simply rolled her eyes back as far as she could and said, yes, it's beautiful. About this time, I decided I'd like to get to know the kid who was flying this balloon. I realized I could try to psych myself up into believing everything would be fine, but the truth was we had placed our lives and destinies in the hands of this pilot. Everything depended on his character and competence. I asked him what he did for a living and how he started flying hot air balloons. I was hoping his former job would be full of responsibilities, like a neurosurgeon perhaps, or an astronaut who had just missed going up into space. I knew we were in trouble when his response to me began, dude, it's like this. He did not even have a regular job. He mostly just surfed. He said the reason he got started flying hot air balloons was this. He had been driving around in his pickup when he had too much to drink, crashed the truck, and badly injured his brother. His brother still couldn't get around too well, so piloting hot air balloons gave him something to do. By the way, he added, 
If things get a little choppy on the way down, don't be surprised. I've never flown this particular balloon before, and I'm not sure how it's going to handle the descent. My wife looked over at me and said, You mean to tell me we are a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk, crashed a pickup, injured his brother, and has never been in this one before and doesn't know how to bring it down? Then the wife of the other couple looked at me and spoke. The only words either of them were to utter throughout the entire flight. You're a pastor. Do something religious. So I took up an offering. Orberg finishes by saying, the great question at a moment like that is, can I trust the pilot? And for the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at as we study the well-known and beloved story of Jesus walking on the water. We'll also be looking at a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew that gives us some additional information. First, a little background. Look at verse 15 with me. So Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The context of this passage was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at last time. The people were so caught up in the miracle experience, they wanted to crown Jesus king. And if the disciples had stayed, they certainly would have fallen in with the plans of the crowd. You see, the Jewish people were looking for the promised Messiah and would have accepted Jesus as that Messiah, except for one thing. He did not fit the mold. He did not fit their idea of what a Messiah should be and do. They wanted a Messiah that would lead a revolt to overthrow the Romans and reestablish Israel to a Davidic-type kingdom. But Jesus wanted them to learn about a heavenly kingdom. For it's easy to recognize God's kingship in the midst of miracles, but Christ wants them to recognize his kingship in the midst of storms. One thing we should always keep in mind is that Jesus does not acquiesce to whims or fancies. He comes to no man on that man's terms. People cannot manipulate him for their own selfish ends. Some modern pastors, in an attempt to be seeker-friendly, present Jesus to unbelievers as a quick fix for felt needs, like health and wealth and self-esteem, by superficially marketing him as providing everything unbelievers want. But that turns the gospel message upside down. People do not come to Christ on their own terms so that he can heal their broken relationships, make them successful in life, and help them feel good about themselves. Instead, they must come to him on his terms. Jesus graciously loves believers and grants them a rich legacy of joy, peace, and sometimes even comfort. But at the same time, he calls sinners to mourn over their sin, repent, and acknowledge him as the sovereign Lord. Jesus rejected the path to the throne taken by most earthly kings. He refused to ride the swell of popular support into Jerusalem. He knew his path to be the way of suffering, 
as it had been prophesied for centuries and planned from the beginning by the Father. Moreover, we will read later in this chapter that he knew that people had been prompted by their stomachs rather than by their hearts. Jesus chose not to address the crowd immediately. Instead, he retreated further into the wilderness hill country. In a parallel account in Matthew 14:22, we are told, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to him on the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. Please also notice, we are told that Jesus went up to the mountain in solitude to pray. I think solitude is a virtue that is almost completely foreign in our times. But it is so important if we want to hear from God. How bad is it? In an article entitled The Joy of Quiet, author Pico Ayer mentions a clifftop hotel room where people pay $2,285 a night, partly for the privilege of not having a TV in their rooms. Ayer comments, The future of travel, I'm reliably told, lies in black hole resorts, which charge high prices precisely because you can't get online in their rooms. Has it really come to this? In barely one generation, we've moved from rejoicing in the time-saving devices that, is so, that have so expanded our lives to trying to get away from them. Sometimes we just need to be quiet if we want to truly hear. Years ago, before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, and a tightly fitted door. In winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut from the frozen waters, halted the ice houses, and then covered with sawdust. Often these ice blocks would last well into the summer. One day, a man lost a valuable watch while working in an ice house. He searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but couldn't find it. His fellow workers also looked, but their efforts, too, proved futile. A small boy who had heard about the fruitless search slipped into the ice house during lunch when everyone had left and soon emerged with the watch. Amazed, the men asked how he found it. He said, I just closed the door lay down in the sawdust and kept very still. Soon, I heard the watch ticking and I easily found it. So often, life can become so hectic that it becomes hard to find time just to sit still and listen to what the Lord is saying. But Jesus often secluded himself so that he could commune intimately with his Father especially in these days and in this hour it is so imperative that we spend time in our own prayer closets so we can clearly hear what the father is saying to us through his still small voice if we do we may find some wonderful and valuable things 
that others have missed. The question isn't whether God will speak, but whether we will take the time to be quiet and still enough to hear his voice. Let's be sure to take time to hear what he is saying to us. So I encourage and exhort both you and me to carve out time in our day where we can sit quietly and listen to the Lord. We say we want to be like Jesus, and if that's true, that's what his life models for us. Back to our account. Jesus makes his disciples get in a boat, and then he retreats to a place of prayer. This entire scene will be a dramatic picture of the church and the Lord today. God's people will be in the sea in the midst of a storm, and yet Jesus is in heaven making intercession for them. And that's the thing to remember the next time we find ourselves in a storm. Anytime we are in a storm, we can be confident that Jesus is in heaven making intercession for us. That should give us a level of confidence knowing that we are not alone. Look at verse 16 with me. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. If you recall the account of Matthew says, he made the disciples get into the boat. The word for made in the Greek means to necessitate, to constrain, or to compel. What that means is that getting into the boat and crossing the Sea of Galilee became a necessary thing for them to do. Why? Because Jesus was urging them, compelling them, and persuading them to do so. The idea here is that they didn't want to leave without him, but he compelled them to do so. This is significant. Why would I say that? There will be times in our lives when we may feel that God is compelling us to go somewhere or do something or say something, and yet we have the feeling that he isn't going to be with us in it. We feel as if he is abandoning us to the situation. Many times the primary reason we feel that way is what he is asking us to do is risky, scary, or doesn't seem to make sense to our way of thinking. Last week, Pastor Chris shared with you my trepidation about becoming pastor of this church. I think the term he used was scared to death. That's pretty close. It was a terrifying prospect to me. And even after the Lord made it clear that that's what he wanted, part of me still thought, okay, Lord, I'll do it. But you're making a pretty big mistake here. I'll probably set Christendom back 200 years. I, of course, am speaking facetiously. It's probably just 100 years. But anyway, enough about my need for therapy. We see here that Jesus makes them go across without him. My question here would have been, Lord, if you send us across, how are you going to get across? What do you think you're going to do? Walk on water or something? 
the end of verse 17 is just pregnant with meaning to me. It says, it was already dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Have you ever been there? I know I have countless times in my walk with Christ. It transpires like this. I do what the Lord has commanded me to do, and it's already dark in the sense that I can't see the outcome of what he has told me to do. And that's frightening enough in and of itself. But then it is magnified by the fact that Jesus has not yet arrived in a way that I can sense. And so I just have to walk by faith. Let me add here that at times like this, and there will be many in a disciple's life, in these times we must never forget in the dark what we have learned in the light. This has been modeled for us countless times in Scripture. But sometimes people will say, yeah, but back then God really showed up. I mean, he would rain down manna from heaven or cause red seas to split or speak face-to-face on occasion. Who wouldn't have great faith if that still happened today? While it is true that God did speak in extraordinary ways in the past, I think we are amiss if we think that happened all the time. I'll give you an Old and New Testament example. The first being Abraham, the father of the faith. The modern conception is that Abraham and God had frequent interaction, but that's possibly not the case. For example, at the close of Genesis 16, Abraham was 86 years old. As far as we know, the next time God spoke to him was Genesis 17.1, and now Abraham is 99 years old. It would seem there was nothing but 13 years of silence in what the scripture records. Or in the New Testament, when you read the book of Acts, it seems like there's a miracle about every seven minutes. But think about this. The book of Acts covers about 30 years of church history. But if you add them up, there are only 20 miracles that are listed. Now, it is true that there were probably more that weren't listed. But my point is, it wasn't the norm. Not only that, the book of Acts was during a time when miracles and signs were needed to be more prevalent to confirm the message of the apostles. Keep in mind, back then there was no New Testament, and so God had to use miracles, signs, and wonders just so people would know that this was a work of God and not some new religion that a bunch of guys thought of. All that to say, if we want to walk pleasing to God, sometimes that path is lonely And that path is dark. Look at verse 18. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Let's notice they were coming off a great spiritual high in the feeding of the 5,000. And now a storm arises. That's often the case, isn't it? Often right after a major victory in our lives, it seems the enemy will ratchet up the temptations and trials. I only say that as a warning for us to be vigilant, for the Bible says we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. But we may say, how did I get in this mess when I was doing what I was sure God wanted me to do? Ever felt that way? Then you're in good company. 
Because I am sure the disciples were wondering that very thing that night as they rode and fought the storm. I would not be surprised to learn that they wondered why Jesus had sent them out into the storm in the first place. Did Jesus know that a storm was coming? Of course. Then why did he deliberately send his friends into danger? Actually, quite the opposite is true. He was rescuing them from a greater danger, the danger of being swept away by a fanatical crowd. But there was another reason for that storm. The Lord has to balance our lives. Otherwise, we will become proud and then fall. The disciples had experienced great joy in being part of that miracle. Now they had to face a storm and learn to trust the Lord more. But that can be hard to remember in the midst of the storm sometimes. I've felt that way many times myself. It's easy to walk by faith when there are no waves, no storms, no danger, and no potential for great pain or loss. But that really isn't a walk of faith, is it? Let me read you the words of Psalm 107.23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Sometimes the Lord creates storms just to cause us sailors to come to our wit's end. You see, in times of pride and pomposity, we think, I'm the captain of my ship and master of my fate, until a storm suddenly and savagely comes into our life. Mankind thinks in their arrogance they're in control. And humanity has replaced the need for outdated superstitions like God. We are gods now. Nothing can stop us. Well, nothing but a tiny little COVID-19 virus you can't even see with your naked eye. But other than that, we are unstoppable. Go us. Hopefully in times like this, we find ourselves calling out to the one for whom we had no time previously or didn't think we had to have a need of personally. Paul says it is the goodness of God that leads us under repentance. That's the ideal, but not always how it works out practically. With those who won't respond to his goodness, God must deal radically in order to get their attention. What does it profit a man, Jesus asked, if he gains the entire world but loses his own soul? Sometimes the Lord may have to put us in a difficult situation to get our attention. You may be thinking, why would he do that? I thought he loved me. He does. He does it because he's more concerned about our eternal state than he is about our present comfort. If you take notes, please write this down for future reference. 
The disciples will be in the middle of the storm and in the middle of God's will. Now that rubs wrong against a lot of teaching today that if you are a faithful Christian, you will be exempt from storms. And yet we clearly see here that that's not the case. We're going to see next week that the disciples who were only following the Lord's command are between three and four miles from land when they encounter this storm. This is also a symbolism for Christians today. Just because we accept Christ as our Savior, just because we do what is right, that doesn't mean we are promised fair and clear weather for the rest of our lives. By following Christ, we will also encounter rough seas in life. The thing about those who don't believe that Christians will encounter storms is that when a storm does hit, and it will, the time when you need to have confidence in God the most, your confidence is totally shattered because of your false preconceptions. Because life is really just getting used to things that you never have planned. Like myself, you may have never been on a storm-tossed boat. I'm not much help here. We went on a cruise last year, but the ship was like a hotel that floated. You could hardly even tell you were on the water. The only real danger I faced was the danger to eat ice cream all day long and then get so fat they would have to throw me overboard like Jonah to keep me from sinking them. That's pretty much the extent of my nautical life. All that to say, we may never be in a storm-tossed boat, but occasionally we will have a storm-tossed life. Furthermore, we've been promised it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the school of life, trials and tribulations are not an elective. They are an essential part of the curriculum. You may be wondering, why do I even have to go through trials and testings? I'm about to give you a major reason. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, we are told that when our lives are tested with fire at the judgment seat of Christ, that which is wood, hay, and stubble will burn. Only that which is gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. So what does the Lord do? He says, to get your mind off the material world, I'm sending you into a storm where you will wrestle with issues and struggle with difficulties. I'm watching over you, praying for you, and living right inside you. But it's a struggle you'll have to go through in order that your focus can be shifted from the temporal to the eternal. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that this is at the very this is the second storm they've encountered. The first was the time when Jesus was asleep in the boat, and the disciples woke him up saying, Master, don't you care if we perish? We will also look at that storm next week. But at least Jesus was present in that storm. But this time, he's nowhere to be found. His presence is not apparent. And we all go through storms where it seems God is not in it and cannot be reached. What do we do then? It reminds me of the words of Job. 
See if this strikes a chord in you, those times you felt God was absent. In despair, Job cries, Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that God was nowhere to be found when you needed him the most? What do we do when that happens? What was Job's response to this dilemma? Job says, no matter which way I turn, God is absent. But the next thing Job says is, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That's the key, isn't it? Even those times when we can't see God's hand and the heaven seems like brass, we must cling to the fact that he knows the way that we take. And in the end, after the testing, we shall also come forth as gold. As we finish up, this is what I want us to get from this morning. After feeding 5,000 people, Jesus sent his disciples into a storm while he ascended to a mountain. I believe he did this to prepare them for the time he would ascend to not a mountain, but all the way to heaven. You see, in Acts chapter 4, another crowd of 5,000 appears, not being fed, but being saved. And immediately after the 5,000 were saved, a storm of persecution broke out so brutal that the disciples were cast into prison. Thus, I believe the storm they went through in John for a couple of hours on the Sea of Galilee was simply preparatory for what would happen in the storm of persecution that would follow in the book of Acts. Our captain sees what tomorrow holds. That's why he says, as difficult as this might seem, it's absolutely necessary to prepare you and perfect you for what is coming. Suffice it to say, there were storms I went through previously that were absolutely necessary for storms that would follow a decade later. My beloved, the storms you and I are going through presently are necessary to enable us to navigate what lies ahead. So what should we do? Should we freak out, give up, and turn back? No. We should follow the example of the disciples, embrace the storm, and stay the course. Because as we will see next week, Jesus will appear to us exactly at the right moment saying, It is I, be not afraid. I know I've left us with a cliffhanger. What will happen to the twelve disciples? Will they make it or become fish food? Turn back or come back next week to find out. And Father, we do thank you. I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish your will, God. Draw us together, Lord. And I pray you would end this COVID-19 thing so I can be back with my brothers and sisters. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.